My name is John, uh, and I'm not sure if I've met everyone in this room, but it's really great to see your masked hidden faces uh, this morning. And for those of you guys online, welcome. Um, our, our text this morning, uh, the title of the sermon is called In Christ, How to Live the Christian Life. And we're going to be addressing four major points. Uh, and so for those of you who are uh, just really strong students, the academics here in this room, uh, it's going to be really frustrating because this first point, uh, we're not going to get to it until almost the very end uh, of our time here. So be ready with your pencil if you are a note taker. Uh, our first point is going to kind of come really far in the last quarter of our time uh, in this passage. But there are going to be four points, so don't let me lose you there. Uh, so please turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 14. Let's begin our time with reading the text. Romans 6, 1 starts and says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Visualize this morning, if you will, uh, this short story. During the height of a war, a group of soldiers are overtaken and captured, and they're forced to serve the enemy state. And a large part of these prisoners of war's duty is going to be to manufacture ammunition, to craft bullets for the enemy state. The irony for, for the enemy state, the irony is that these prisoners of war are actually going to be creating the very bullets that we're going to be using against their home country, against their friends, and against their family, against their allies. But years later, it's announced that the war is finally over. The enemy state has surrendered. 
the soldiers are finally set free. So these soldiers that have been prisoners of war for years have finally been released by their captives and return home. It's a really nice short story, isn't it? But I want you to think and imagine how absurd it would be for one of these prisoners of war to simply return back to their duties. Imagine this one man of these captives that has been released, he just hears the good news, he understands the freedom that he now has, but here he is. He's sitting back in his cell, still crafting the same ammunition for the war that has ended, for his enemies that have already been defeated, in a cell that is not policed. On top of that, there are no longer shackles binding him, reminding him why he's there. They don't exist. Yet here he is, surrendering himself to an instrument for the enemy who no longer has any power over him. It's absurd, isn't it? This illustrates one major overarching idea for this morning. Um, It's not in your notes, um, but if you are taking notes, I want you to jot this down. One's outward actions need to be expressed. They need to express the reality that they find themselves in. Their, Their outward actions, the things they do, need to express their internal realities, the realities that they find themselves in. So the reality for this prisoner in this short story is that he is free. Yet is he living in that reality? No. His outward actions, returning back to his cell, making bullets for his enemy, does not reflect his newfound freedom. In fact, his actions contradict reality this would be understood as absurd. So in a similar vein, it would be absurd for someone who claims to be a Christian, that reality of being a Christian, a Christ follower, and yet their actions never reflect their claim. This type of contradiction is rightly referred to as hypocrisy. There's nothing around it. If someone claims to be a Christian, there should be, logically, there should be outward actions that express the reality that they find themselves in. And yet, a lot of times, what we hear from a lot of outsiders, a lot of people outside of the church, outside of the community of God, they look into the church, or they look at people that claim to be Christians, and they're like, I don't want to go there. Like, there's just so much hypocrisy. You know, we, we hear the claim of a changed life, but we don't see it. And it's a legitimate claim. But is this, is hypocrisy, is this what God wants his church to look like? Of course not. So the question this morning, and what this text is going to be addressing for the rest of this morning is, what does God desire his church, 
his community, the community of God, a surrendered community, what does he desire this to look like? So church family, new believers, guests, uh, those of you online, um, and maybe even those of you that are listening um, that have no affiliation to Christianity whatsoever, um, welcome. We're glad to have you guys here this morning because we get to walk through this passage and hear what God says about what it means to live the Christian life in Christ. So let's give a little bit of background to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, uh, the literary style of this book is known as an epistle. What is an epistle? Uh, it's, a, it's a letter. Um, it's, it's usually referred to as something that is didactic, which means that it's informative, uh, it's instructional, uh, and historians, scholars believe that it is Paul that wrote this epistle, and that it was dated between 56 and 57 AD. You're asking, John, why is this important? Um, this is actually really helpful for us to understand the context of what's going on in, in chapter 6, um, because uh, what we see in these Roman house churches during the time that Paul is writing to them, it's made out of who? Um, it's the Jewish Christians, the Jewish believers, as well as the Gentile, the non-Jewish believers. What happens before Paul writes this letter? Well, the historian, uh, Suetonius, tells us that Emperor Claudius actually exiled the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. So before this letter was written, uh, the, the emperor nixed all the Jews out of Rome. He said, you got to get out of here. And why was that? The reason why is because there was all these riots happening from the Jewish community because there were claims uh, from the Christians saying, this Jesus guy, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Um, and there's this pushback from the other Jewish community that are saying, no way, no way. So there's this rioting going on, butting of heads. Uh, and so Claudius, the emperor, is like, no, <laughs> not in my house. Uh, you know, and so he exiles the Jews. Luke in Acts uh, chapter 18 verse 2 kind of implies something. He says, he kind of implies that not only were the Jews, uh, not only were they expelled out of Rome, but it's also the Jewish Christians. So the church then is affected. Whenever Claudius uh, exiles the Jews, the Jewish Christians also get ripped out of the church. And so what do we have now in the church? We just got a bunch of Gentiles. What happens here with, with these Gentiles as, as they're continuing to participate as the community of God? Some of them move into leadership roles. They continue to preach about what it means to be in Christ alone. So by the time that Paul actually writes Romans, what's going on? There's a new emperor in town. His name is Nero. Uh, and he actually lets the Jewish community come back and return to Rome. But mind you, what has happened to the church is these Gentiles have taken on leadership roles. Um, Majority-wise, they're pretty much all Gentile-based, and these Jews are allowed to come back into the church, the Jewish Christians. And now, what does the Jewish community see? They see that Gentiles have overtaken the church. And so now, there's going to be kind of these tensions that are, that are waging between these two different communities, still as one community of God, but there's still this tension. And even today, we still see tension. It's not always ethnic, 
Um, but we definitely do still see tension in the church. So who is this first audience? Who is receiving this epistle first? It's going to be the Jewish uh, and Gentile Christians in the house churches in Rome um, during this period. And the purpose of the book of Romans uh, is that Paul wants to give a substantial resume um, for two reasons. The first reason is he's preparing for his intended ministry there. He knows he's going to Rome in the future, and he also is cognizant. He knows that there's been some people at the house churches in Rome that have been speaking badly, kind of running a smear campaign of Paul, and they're kind of throwing around rumors that this man, he's anti-law. This man is anti-Jewish. He speaks of faith, but what he's really saying is, so he knows that they're misconstruing his message. They're faulting his character behind his back. So he writes the substantial resume of his theology. But also part of it is that he wants to generate interest because he knows that he wants to proclaim the gospel message to Spain. So he wants to kind of get some people geared in for that. Like we're going to preach this together and we're in this mission together. The second thing is um, not only is he trying to prepare for his intended ministry there, but he's also... Uh, trying to address a problem within the church. That's what his epistles do. Um, And in this case, in Romans, what is the issue that's being addressed? It's that the Jewish and Gentile Christians are just not getting what it means to be one body, one community under God. Specifically in chapter 6, where our text lies, we're going to see a lot of contrasts. Paul is a man of rhetoric, He uses all these specific contrasts like being dead to sin and alive in Christ. The realities of the old self versus the new self. Um, He uses another contrast of being enslaved to sin and then being set free from sin. Paul also uses imagery, um, baptismal language to kind of paint this picture of what it really means to be baptized into Christ's death and buried with Christ, and to be raised, as we see in verse 4, that we too might walk in newness of life. So what do we see in this text? Let's begin with verse 1. As we go back to verse 1, what do we find? We find four questions that Paul begins this text with. So where do these questions come from? Some scholars uh, believe that it's coming from Paul. Um, that, that these questions uh, were being generated from Paul because he constantly and regularly needed to answer these questions to skeptics, that these were real questions that he just knew that they were going to ask about what does it mean to be following Christ alone, that we're only saved by Christ alone, uh, people that were questioning and skeptical about the power of God's grace. Uh, another scholar believes that, yeah, these, uh, these questions are coming from Paul, but not necessarily are they real questions from skeptics, but uh, it's, it's mainly just Paul being Paul, uh, and he's adopting this philosophical argument, um, almost like playing the devil's advocate, offering a counterposition to give a more robust argument. Um, and so if this is the case, then he'd be pivoting off of uh, the ending of chapter 5, where he talks about Um, when sin increases, God's glory increases. Uh, And so Robert Mounts says this. He says, where there's an increase in sin, 
there's an even greater increase in grace. So the question was bound to arise, why not continue in sin so the greatness of God's grace may be seen more fully? And in order to protect his name and reputation, I'm going to give you a kind of a really quick illustration of a friend that I had in college. Um, we'll call him Mike. Uh, and uh, one of my friends in college, we did ministry together. He was an accomplished guitar player. Wow, like uh, Guitar Institute of California. He, you know, cut uh, his um, full, full ride scholarship to serve in ministry. And uh, when I got to talk to him and get to know him a little bit more, I found out that who Mike was on stage, strapped in into a guitar, was totally different from the Mike that I knew off stage. In fact, when I went to college with him, I knew that he was in a series uh, of relationships and made terrible life decisions that never reflected what I saw on stage when serving with him. And a group of us noticed it. And finally, we, we just had to kind of come up to him and, to, on the side and lovingly, out of love and respect for the ministry that he believed that God was calling him to, we were like, we got to talk to him. We, we got to tell him, like, what you're doing off stage is not matching the reality that you found yourself in. You're not professing Christ in your actions off stage, which really gives a shortcoming to what you're saying on stage. So Mike, what you gonna do, man? And what's so heavy on my heart, uh, we, he's not in ministry today. Um, his, his response uh, a tainted, terrible response, kind of still haunts me today. This is what he says. He says, hey, man, in a, in a very jokingly way. Oftentimes, that's how people justify their actions. And they jokingly laugh it off. He says, hey, man, I'm just building up my testimony so that God's grace looks even bigger in my life. So cringeworthy to think about that. And uh, what Mike has done for us this morning is illustrated um, this belief, antinomianism, this belief that, yeah, it's through Christ alone, so the moral law is off the table. I don't need to be moral because I have Christ alone. And yet, that is not the message of Christianity. That is not what it means to be a Christian. That's not the Christian life. Paul, that is not Paul's message. That's what he's saying. So um, some of the scholars, the camp of Paul, they believe that it comes from Paul, but other scholars believe that this question is actually coming from conscientious Jews who were worried that the gospel of faith alone in Christ would entice people to be just morally irresponsible, going back to antinomian beliefs, or <laughs> like my friend Mike. Um, and so one scholar says this, although the latter group questioned the teaching for fear of what it might do, the former embraced the doctrine for what they felt it would allow them to do. How despicable it would be for a son to consider himself free to sin because he knew that his father would forgive him. How despicable it would be for a son to consider himself free to sin because he knew that his father would forgive so, how does Paul answer this question? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he say in verse 2? 
He says, by no means. The literal rendering of this is never. You got to kind of get that real like gravelly voice. Like never may it be. I had a, a professor, a graduate professor, and I, I won't take too much time on this, but he was uh, explaining how in basketball, when he played defense, he kind of took on uh, this phrase. Um, I'm not going to say it, but basically he's yelling in Greek to his opponents, never may it be, as he caps them on a layup. Um, almost like Dikembe Mutombo, <laughs> like not in my house. And Paul, in a sense, is kind of playing defense to these skeptics or even people with antinomian beliefs. He's saying, Never may it be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I want you to look at this in the text. Who or what dies? Growing up in Sunday school myself, um, I would have quickly said, oh, sin, sin dies. The believer has to live. The believer has new life. But is that what the text is saying? No. That's not what the text is saying. What is the text saying? It's not sin. Rather, it's the believer who died to sin. This is huge. What does this death mean? It removes the believer from the control of sin to the control of their heinous desires to the rule of their wretched nature And now moving that to the rule by truth, Christ himself. We see it uh, in in the very first chapter in Psalms. We see this in Isaiah 9 through 11 of the perfect king, the perfect ruler. Origen, uh, one of the most influential anti-Nicene theologians, says this about death to sin. He says, to obey the cravings of sin is to be alive to sin, but not to obey the cravings of sin or succumb to its will, this, this is to die to sin. Another, uh, another theologian, R.A. Knox, comments and says, on this passage, Knox says, how can we who have died to sin breathe its air again? And if you follow later in his comments, he actually uses this illustration of going back to a dead corpse and trying to breathe the same air as it. What a heavy illustration to think about. We are dead to sin, which means that there is no power over us anymore. We are not in service to sin no longer if we're believers in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And in verse 4, he says that we are buried, therefore, with him by baptism. And again, we're going back to that baptismal language again, where he's using this imagery to show what this covenant act of baptism is. In our Wednesday night Bible study, we talked about how the the breaking of one loaf, partaking of the crushed grape of the vine, all are illustrative imagery that teaches us and reminds us of the gospel message, but in the same way, baptism, the covenant act of baptism, it's not the water that saves you, but the act itself is imagery of what it means for the believer to be dead with Christ. Christ's death is our death. His burial is our burial, burial being what substantiates, what confirms, what attests to the reality of the death. 
and being raised to new life because Christ's new life, that is my new life. His resurrection was my resurrection. His new life, I participate actively in that new life. What is he doing here? What is he painting? He's painting the gospel message. In our young adults uh, Bible study a couple weeks ago on Sunday night, um, we, we really addressed this issue that we see in some churches today um, that are trying to claim uh, high academia because we've graduated from the gospel. The gospel is what we learn in Sunday school, but we're all about everything else after the gospel message. Church, this morning, I want to remind you, we are people of the book. Church, I want to remind you, believers, I want to remind you, we never, never grow out of the gospel message. Never. As the great hymn, uh, great modern hymn says, uh, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. A believer's baptism, it illustrates that reality of being in Christ. What does it mean to confess being in Christ? It's the gospel. It's living it out. It's confessing that Christ's death was my death. Christ's burial was my burial. Christ's resurrection from the dead is my resurrection from the dead. And Christ's new life is the one that I currently am participating in. I am participating in the humanity of Christ, the perfectness of Him. One scholar says that we are raised to an entirely new way of living. So what does being in Christ mean for believers? What of sin? If we're dead to sin, what of it? What happens? So Paul continues in verse 6. He says uh, and clarifies pretty much everything he's been saying up to this point. He restates and expands verses 3 through 5, kind of takes a microscope and explains it even deeper. He explains what it means to be in union with Christ, to belong with Christ, what it means to be in Christ. We see this in other passages like in Galatians 3 when he says those baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. He's the same imagery about being clothed um, in that put on the armor of God passages in Ephesians 6 when we have to put on the whole armor of God. Sometimes we forget that this passage is actually saying we need to put on Christ because He is perfection, that we're reminding ourselves of the gospel work in Christ and how the Spirit makes us more like Him. And so Paul, I think he's familiar with this old adage that a good teacher knows that truth once stated is not necessarily absorbed. So he repeats himself over and over and over again, uh, this is the old self, this is the new self. What does it mean to have union with Christ? We need to participate in the humanity of Christ. 
also in the Wednesday night Bible study, we had a little bit of fun, um, and uh, I got to kind of ramble a little bit uh, about this Philippians 2 passage, um, which kind of gives us a little bit more of an understanding of what it means to participate in the humanity of Christ. Um, the NIV could have done a little bit of a better job uh, instead of using a gloss mindset. Um, whenever it says that we need to have the mindset of Christ, instead the NIV says that we need to, or the, the NIV renders this as having the mindset of Christ. And it's not having the mindset of Christ, um, rather it's having the mind of Christ. We have new minds in Christ, and we are participating um, in His humanity. Uh, and, and one of the ways that we can illustrate this point is Martin Luther, the great reformer, uses this illustration, this analogy of a horseman. He says it's not just that we need new mindsets to be a better horseman, to navigate a rogue maverick horse. Instead, we need a completely new horseman. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. McKinnon, uh, used this example to kind of illustrate and piggyback off of Luther's example with a car that had a pull. My very first car was a 1996 Mercury Mystique. It was terrible. It had the worst alignment problems ever. I hit a speed bump. It's gone. <laughs> it wouldn't, wouldn't uh, exist at all in Hawaii. Anyways, imagine if I brought my Mercury Mystique to the top of Wilhelmina Rise. I would dare not sneeze. <laughs> uh, that car would have a pull, let's say it would have a pull to the left, and I would die, my death is imminent uh, in that car if I tried to think, oh, okay, I just need to fix my driving. I know what the problem is, and I can manually course correct and safely come down and descend down Wilhelmina Rise. But no, and so McKinnon draws off this example a little bit uh, and says what Luther is saying is that we need a completely different driver altogether, and not just any driver, but the driver. So he uses this to bridge off to Christ and in his perfect humanity uh, that in our sin, Christ took on the full human nature, including um, the broken will, the sin nature, um, and he, in his perfection, in his divinity, knowing the will of the Father, forced into submission the sinfulness, the sin of humanity. And he dies a sinner's death. Being perfect, dying on the cross, he died a death to sin. And he was raised to new life. A lot of scholars say that this is the good news of the gospel. Because as Christ has raised from the dead... As we confess in trust and faith that Christ's work was efficacious, that it paid for it all, that we too might raise in new life. Not only that, but Christ will never die again. I got the chance to visit uh, the Notre Dame uh, in Paris uh, the Santiago de Compostela in Spain, um, and a few other cathedrals uh, when I was in college. And, and it was beautiful imagery. Um, and if you walk through these cathedrals, you'll see uh, just richly ornate. Um, a lot of time, oftentimes, you're, you're going to see almost the whole meta narrative of Scripture. Um, but what really uh, just Oh, it frustrated me so much was to see postcards and imagery of little snapshots, almost char 
caricature uh, images of who Jesus is, and they'd only focus on the crucifixion of Christ. And therefore, a lot of people that visit these places that know nothing about Christianity, they're going to think, all right, you know, Christianity is all about this dead guy because all the imagery that they're being told about is about this man that is dead or dying on a cross. This caricature of Christ, it is not acceptable. Yes, it is foundational for our faith. But does he constantly have to die over and over and over again, or is there something after that? And I think for us as believers, what we confess is that Christ raised from the dead, that his resurrection is our resurrection, that his death to sin is our death to sin, and his new life is our new life in Christ. Christ never has to die again because his death was perfect. Our death sentence that we owed was met in Christ. Your sin paid for in Christ once for all. So what is the practical outworking of being in Christ? As we've built up this very large crescendo uh, of a sermon this morning, um, where do we actually have handles on what it means to participate in the Christian life? Uh, This is where we're going to move to to verse 11, and we're going to start to kind of land the plane a bit. Um, We're going to start to give you guys a little bit of a feel for what does it mean. The first point that I want you guys uh, to take this morning is in Christ, we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Where do we get this from? Um, One one of my pedagogies, uh, whenever we're reading through this text and we talk about it, um, is we try to find areas where there's already command statements. Paul has already baked into his text points of application for us this morning. And so we're going to see these four imperatives. They're going to be our four points this morning. You might have already worked ahead and knew what was going to happen because you saw what those commanding verbs were. And so this first one is, what is Paul's first takeaway? He says that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. In our Wednesday night Bible study, we talked about and identified that there are 14 first personal pronouns. Paul, what he's doing here, he's using a lot of we language. He uses the word we 13 times, and then he also has a y'all in there for you guys that are Southern. He has the all of us. Um, What is he doing with these first person personal pronouns? He's saying this message that I believe that is our resume, it's a we belief. We as believers, believe that Christ's death is our death, that his burial is our burial. We believe that his resurrection is our resurrection, that his new life is our life. We believe these things. And so what is he doing here is he's pivoting from verse 11, moving forward and saying, now because we believe these things, you guys, the house churches in Rome, you yourselves do these things. And he gives those four imperatives. What does it mean to consider yourselves dead to sin? Uh, One of the glosses is counting yourself, judging yourself. You are identifying yourself as dead to sin. And this is not the little engine that quit theology saying, I think I can, I think I can, I I I think I can, ah, I can't do it. It's not a mantra. 
What does it mean to consider yourselves dead to sin? It means living out the reality of being in Christ. How? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Participating in God's work through the Spirit of God in our lives. What's so great about this is that we can already start to see Paul using communal language. He's using the idea of not individualized Christianity that we see in the 70s and 80s literature um, uh, of Christianity. You know, like, uh, it's just me, Jesus, and the Bible. Just me, Jesus, and the Bible. Me, Jesus, and the church can be optional, but me, Jesus, and the Bible. It's not about that. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you yourselves, you the church, all (laughs) y'all, I went to school in the mainland. Um, he's saying, all of you guys, because we believe the same things, all of you guys represent Christ well. So what does it mean to live out considering ourselves dead to sin community? Um, I adopted uh, this, this philosophy, uh, this pedagogy of ministry um, from our small group leader back in North Carolina, where his motto was the same model, uh, you know, what does it mean to be in community of God? Saying, lean in. In the good, in the bad, in the times of much, in the time of little, we lean in. And we're going to talk more about that um, here in a little bit. But what does it mean to be in Christ? It means to lean into community. It means to consider ourselves dead to sin as a community. How do we do that? We worship together. How do we do that? We, we pray for one another. We, we follow up with the prayers for one another. We meet needs. We're going to talk more about that too in a little bit. But we need to lean in. We need to press in to community. When we feel like we want to lean out, we just lean right back in to the community of God. As Pastor Matt preached last week, it's not about negotiations. It's not about partial covenants with the covenant people of God. It's all about leaning in. Recall at that. Uh, recall back of that short little story, that opening war scenario, um, where the enemy was defeated, and yet we find this one man uh, that is free, and yet he goes back to his unmanned cell. Be the community that brings that brother back home that reminds him, the wandering brother, going back to serve an enemy that has been defeated, reminding him that he has freedom. Maybe even carrying him back there. Point number two. In Christ, we don't let sin reign. Verse 12 says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, what Paul is doing here is he's personifying, he's giving, he's treating something that isn't human as a human, and and he's saying uh, that sin is this ruler who makes man obey their cravings unto their death. But it is because of Christ's death, the relationship believers have to sin is severed, cut off. This does not mean that you will not sin like some believe. This does not mean that your desire 
um, to sin doesn't exist anymore. What does it mean? It means that we need to participate in the Spirit's work in our lives. It means that we participate by not feeding sin's appetite. That we learn to starve sin, as John Owen famously says, that be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's us asking God to change our desires to become Godward, which was once human word. Point number three, in Christ, we don't present ourselves to sin, but in Christ, this is number four, in Christ, we present ourselves to God. Verse 13 kind of combines this third and fourth point together in a package. And this is, again, Paul uh, using this contrast. Some scholars uh, believe and see that Paul is using this kind of in military terms, uh, and they're rendering presenting as yielding over instruments for warfare as weapons to the enemy, kind of like our opening scenario. Um, Other scholars believe that this word is more of like used as instruments uh, for a master builder, but but in either sense, we see the same thing going on. Um, Paul is saying that our master, our allegiance has changed. There's a difference between the old self, sin being the master of the old self, what Paul refers to as the flesh over and over again, being our master, used for unrighteousness, and the opposite of new life in Christ. Which for those of you guys that don't have a personal relationship with Christ, this is something that is being offered to you. That sin doesn't have to be your master anymore unto your death. That you can participate in what it means to have faith in Christ. So let's go back to this communal aspect. Because Christianity is not an individualized, isolated, static thing. What is it? It's about being a part of the church community. How do we approach the third and fourth point of presenting ourselves, not to sin, but presenting ourselves to God in community? goes back to the same old mantra, lean in. Lean into community. I just want to offer a really quick, helpful little thing. One of the ways that you can lean into community is just sharing life with people. It's a no-holds commitment. I'm not holding back this. God, my house is not clean today. You can't use my unclean house today. No. God, this is all your blessings in my life. I'm giving it back to you for you to use. I'm going to leverage my living space My personal me time, I'm an introvert, my me time for your glory. Nothing's off the table. No partial covenants. We are not just Sunday Christians. We live out our Christian community on Monday, on Tuesday. Uh, you know, Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday. We, we live Christian community every day. We need to lean in. 
Bonhoeffer does a really good job uh, in his book Life Together of painting this picture of it and expressing what it means to this community of God. He refers to it as the community of love. And what he does really well and rightly in, in this book is that he explains the differences between um, fellowship and real fellowship. He explains what does real fellowship look like. What it looks like is when there's a group of people that look nothing alike, maybe dress differently, have totally different hobbies and desires. They have nothing in common at all except they're in Christ. That's what brings them together. Uh, Bonhoeffer says, what beauty it is to see a group of people who have nothing in common except that they share a fellowship in Christ. It looks weird. It looks absurd. It doesn't make sense to outsiders. But this is what God calls his church to look like. A people committed to each other, committed to God and leaning in. Verse 14 ends with this, and it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul ends by addressing uh, this promise for believers, uh, saying, Believers are no longer under the law. The law is still very important because it teaches us about God's holy standard. But those in Adam, those in sin, are judged by the old covenant, the weight of the Mosaic law. But those in Christ are judged by the new covenant. They're judged by Christ's righteousness, not ours. So I want to conclude our time this morning for a chance for you guys to respond. Um, there's three audiences here um, and listening online. Uh, first audience, for those of you guys that know Christ, you guys are, are the faithful few, walking it out um, and walking it out well. Um, I, I want you guys to really be encouraged by this passage. Um, if you are faithfully walking this out, awesome. Your church needs you. There are going to be people here in this church that don't know what it means to respond in Christ. And so we need you guys. You guys are responsible for this group of people that need mature Christians, that know how to faithfully walk out this passage. Be encouraged of what this new life in Christ looks like. Remember that sin has no power over you. Build relational equity. What does that mean? It means building relationship, doing life with people around you for the glory of God. It means leaning into your church community, not just waiting for community to simply appear one Sunday like, oh, look at that. It's being part of the active group of people that are being more than just Sunday Christians. It means forging relationships. It means considering ourselves as a community dead to sin and alive to God. It means pressing in together. It means delighting in community. It means sharing in our weaknesses. It means praying for one another, following up on those prayers. It means celebrating together. It means confessing sins to each other. It means serving one another. It means growing in generosity together, and it means meeting needs of one another, ultimately growing in Christ-likeness together. For those of you who know Christ but have fallen away from the community, from the church family, 
want to remind you, you have freedom from the bondage of sin and a new life in Christ, but you can't do this on your own. Christianity was never meant to be individualistic. Lean in. Your growth as a Christ follower depends on you to lean into God's community. Participating in Christ means Christ's body, the church. So I I don't want to press in on this part too much, but for those of you guys on the online community, um, if you feel comfortable uh, and and ready to come back to church, um, and maybe you think you've been forgotten, I want to just remind you, lean in. We're ready to have you. If you're ready, and, and, and this morning, I, I want to remind you guys that, that maybe are visiting uh, and maybe your churches haven't gathered yet, I want to remind you, lean into community. If that means going back to your home church and leaning in there, do it. We're not going to steal you away, but I want you to remember what it means to participate as God's community. Lean in. And finally, the last group, for those of you who personally do not know Christ, wants you to realize what need you have that Christ meets. For those of you guys that may be desiring what it means to be in a real community, to be in the community of God, I want to read this passage really quickly in Matthew 11, where Jesus invites sinners, saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For those of you guys that fall into this category, receive Christ. He will have you. You think you're a mess? He will have you. If you feel like you don't deserve forgiveness and you've fallen too far away from community, He will have you. Christ gives us hope. He gives us peace, and he gives us right standing before God. Receive Christ today. He will have you. And if you wish to know more about Christ, what it means to be in Christ, in the community of God, or simply find out more what it means to lean in, uh, we, we'd love to hear from you. Um, find me uh, or Pastor Matt after the service, um, and, and let's engage in conversation about this.